Well, I want to share with you a message on divine providence. And uh, we're not going to dive into it too much theologically, but it is a it is a theological discussion, and there's people that have, on varying degrees believe in divine providence. There's five references to God in the Declaration of Independence. And you can find them if you pull the text up and go through it. Early on, <clears throat> there's a couple references when it... Um, well, I'll just, I'll just read <coughs> um, in the first part... It talks about, you know, that, that nature's law and nature's God, it commands us to do something about the severance of, of these injustices. So in the middle part, he talks about that all people are endowed by their creator with certain unavailable rights. And there's two references late, almost at the very tail end of the Declaration of Independence. And one of them, the last one is in the last sentence. And th- here it is. And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence. That's the terminology. <coughs> divine providence. We mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Those are familiar words, aren't they? That's how the Declaration of Independence finishes. What is divine providence. What is the definition of divine providence? Anybody want? Class is open. Yeah. When you hear the words, and, and really, you have to kind of like step into their world where they were living, and by the way, this is Thomas Jefferson using the, these terms, okay? So he, unless something happened late in his life, he probably did not have a redemptive experience with the Lord. Pray that he did. But it didn't mean he didn't believe. And he didn't have a, an idea of God because he, it's, it's in the Declaration of Independence that we are endowed by our Creator. You know, 50 years later, Darwin wrote his book on the origin of the species, and, and poor Jefferson, if he had just had that book, he, he would have known not to use creator, right? But he, he had a firm sense that this just didn't happen, that God created, and God created us in such a way that we have, from his perspective, certain unchallenged rights, unalienable rights, in his life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But when he gets down to the end, he makes his final declaration of relying on the protection of divine providence. What do you think he meant by that? <clears throat> what do you think he meant by divine providence? God's got us, God's got it covered. It's going to all work out because God has his hand on it. Is that kind of what you get the sense of? Well, that, what, somebody else say something else? His forgiveness? Yeah, his redemptive plan. You know, from the time he 
killed animals and took their skins and, and put a covering on over Adam and Eve, it shows that God wanted to provide a covering for man's sin from the very first two people who sinned. So the redemptive thread is the, is the blood of Jesus that tracks all the way through. The animals were a substitute until Jesus came and by his blood permanently and forever atoned for the sins of men. But another term that walks hand in hand with divine providence is the sovereignty of God. Now, I'm going to read, you know, you can, you can Google this <clears throat> and say, what is the definition of divine providence? Let me just give you one site that may pop up on your search. It's, it refers to it this way. God in eternity past, in the counsel of his own will, ordained everything that will happen. Yet in no sense is God the author of sin, nor is human responsibility removed. So the primary means by which God accomplishes his will is through secondary courses like the laws of nature and human choice. In other words, God usually works indirectly to accomplish his will. Another way of putting this, and you know how I feel about this statement, God is in control. You know what my thoughts are on that. I believe that God is sovereign, meaning his plan will ultimately win. But I'm not, I, I, I can't go with that definition of divine providence, that God has ordained everything. Let me, let me just put one thing in American history that you tell me it was God's plan, the Civil War. It was God's plan that Americans kill each other to the tune of over 600,000 people. And people's going to have a hard time pressing me to agree that that was ordained to happen. Because when I stand in the middle of the cemetery at Gettysburg, it breaks my heart. And I told Brenda the last time we was there was just about a year or so ago, I said, this was a colossal waste of life that did not have to take place. Did God ordain the Civil War? Absolutely not. So is God sovereign? Does he work in spite of people fighting each other in a Civil War? Does God's can God work his purpose in the midst of men's disobedience even though he's not authoring their disobedience? You know, here, here's a person in the Bible that's kind of an interesting person with the sovereignty of God and, and, and I prefer the statement sovereignty of God. Paul, was Saul of Tarsus, was dedicated to the destruction of the church, was he not? He did everything he could to stamp out this new movement because he felt it was absolutely against the purpose of God, Jehovah. And when the Lord shows up on the road to Damascus, one of the things he says to Saul of Tarsus is that it is hard for you to kick against the goads or the pricks. In other words, he said, you're not only going the wrong direction, you're kicking against the purpose I have for you. And when he was redeemed, he came to see 
And he even wrote that from his mother's womb, God had ordained him to do what he was doing. Now, the ordination was there. The, the selection, God had chosen him. Jeremiah said the same thing, right? He says, from my mother's womb, you ordered me, you, you chose me to be a prophet. But along that way, they had to accept that. Because otherwise, we're just spiritual robots. And what, would, what joy would God get out of making us serve him? Forcing us to love him. That wouldn't be love, would it? So divine providence. I want to take you to a passage in Psalms. It's Psalm 20, verse 7. And um, this kind of defines, I think, where people's trust is and where their confidence is. And I believe the sovereignty of God is right in the middle of this. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Some trust. Now listen, he wasn't saying chariots and horses are of no good. <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't say, all y'all just go ahead and do without chariots and, and y'all just be a foot infantry and just run into the battle. But what he was saying is where are, where's your confidence at? What are you, are you trusting in the apparatuses that's under your control? Are you trusting in God who has sovereign power over all things? And it's when people trust in him and put confidence in him, they begin to see his purpose, right? His plan. The book of Judges reveals a lot about this. Did God ordain everything in Judges to take place? Well, if he did, it's kind of like he ordained them to misbehave so he can ordain them to be punished. But the people misbehaved. Why did they misbehave? It's a history, it's a history of, of a society whose legal structure was, was unique. It was tribal family oriented. Where all these 12 tribes of Israel were scattered about in their land allotment. And they were entrusted to implement the law of Moses in their societal activities. And they had the tabernacle as their joint, their, their focal point to come and worship God collectively as a nation. There were seasons where they did that and there were seasons when their pagan neighbors led them astray or they, they were led astray by their own flesh. And God judged them and punished them and he raised up judges to rescue them like Gideon, Right? God is sovereign in that, but you, it's hard to say God is in control of that because he grants us a lot of liberty, doesn't he? We, we, can, we can go home tonight and we can get on our knees and pray and have some time with him, or we can go home and, and watch uh, news and get all flustered. And go to bed one or two ways. Flustered or like, wow, that was a neat time with the Lord. Now, which one of those do you think he ordained? But which one of them did we do? And if he's in control, 
what explains us doing the other? Are you following me? And, and we're going to track this, especially with coming up on July the 4th. It's the, it's the sovereignty of God, the plan of God. Here's how I describe the sovereignty of God is God's plan. Like I told my son Jason one time when he said, Lord, uh, Daddy, that, that guy got away with that, that crime. He just got away with it. I said, no, he never, people don't get away with anything. It, their conviction might have been thrown out because of a little deal with the legal system, but there's a higher judicial system than our system. And it's the court of the Lord, and it's the court of God. And he, here's what I said to Jason. Jason, hold on. Righteousness will prevail. The purpose of God will prevail. It will outlast evil. So at some point in the way, evil would be broken down. So what was Jefferson referring to when he said divine providence? And you look at the entire delegation. There was 56 people that signed the Declaration of Independence. They approved the draft of Jefferson's Declaration on July the 4th. 1776. Two days earlier, the resolution to declare independence from England was passed. And John Adams wrote to his wife, Abigail. They wrote letters all the time. And he said this to her in this letter after they voted for the resolution. He said, the second day of July 1776 will be the most memorable epoch in the history of America. I am apt to believe that it will be celebrated by succeeding generations as the great anniversary festival, July 2. It ought to be commemorated as a day of deliverance by solemn acts of devotion to God Almighty. It ought to be solemnized with pomp and parade and shows and games and sports and guns. <laughs> Go out and shoot your shotguns. See, the NRA goes way, way back. With bells and bonfires and illuminations from one end of this continent to the other from time forward forevermore. That's how excited he was about July 2. And yet it turns out we celebrate July 4. Poor guy. The draft, listen, the draft, though, is edited. One of the neat things you ever get to go to the Jefferson Memorial. How many have been to Washington, D.C.? You've been to Jefferson Memorial? I love that. I just love Washington, D.C. I can never get tired of going to Washington, D.C. The Lincoln Memorial, going in the shops, seeing the copies of the rough draft of Jefferson's Declaration and all the editing that was done to it. Do you realize that there was an entire paragraph in his original text deleted? That when it was brought to an entire 56 delegates, they deleted it. They, con they shrunk down some of his paragraphs. Adams was beside himself. But Jefferson didn't show any malice, you know, this grand document that he spent a long time putting together. They were slicing it up. 
But I want you to listen to the paragraph was completely deleted. Because when you read it, he gives these lists of what King George had done as proof that it was time to separate from England. He, King George, has waged cruel war against human nature, violating its most sacred rights of life and liberty in the person's, listen, listen closely, in the person's, has anybody read this, the original? Okay. Violating the sacred rights of life and liberty in the persons of a distant people who never offended him, captivating and carrying them into slavery in another hemisphere or to incur miserable death in their transportation hither. This is pirate warfare is what he's saying. Uh, of infidel powers is the warfare of the Christian king of Great Britain determined to keep an open market where men should be bought and sold. He has prostituted his negative for suppressing every legislative attempt to prohibit or to restrain this terrible commerce, determined to keep open market where men should be bought and sold, and that this assemblage of horrors might want no fact of, dement, of distinguished die. He is now exciting those very people to rise in arms against us. You know, we didn't just have slavery to come to this country because America invented it. England invented it. If they didn't invent it, they brought it, they brought it with, you realize that. The slave industry came as a British idea. And King George, you know, they're, they're calling him to bear on the responsibility of that. And then he says, not only are you okay with these people being brought here against their will, now you're turning and asking them to rise up and take up arms against us. And so he says, by purchase that liberty by which he had deprived them by murdering the people upon whom he had also obtruded them, thus paying off former crimes committed against the liberties of one people with crimes which he urges them to commit against the lives of another. The entire paragraph was deleted. Years later, Jefferson said the delegates of South Carolina and Georgia and even some in the northern colonies who benefited from the slave industry was part of the deletion. Now, think of this. This was one of the hotly contested things. If you, if you want a really good book on July the 4th, it's David McCullough's 1776. This was a hotly contested paragraph. It ended up being on what the film industry said, the film floor. And yet, nobody objected to the references to God. But they objected to the references of slavery. And among that group was Benjamin Franklin. Now... I don't think Benjamin Franklin was a believer. I hope he came to the Lord before he died. But five weeks, um, five weeks before he died, one of his friends, Ezra Stiles, um, sent him a letter pressing him about whether he had faith and knew the Lord because he was one of those who sit in the room and yeah, I believe in we're all created by God, but 
What about Jesus? Ezra Stiles was the president of Yale University. And he pressed, Franklin was one of his closest friends. And he pressed Franklin because he was getting sick and infirmed about where he stood with the Lord. So here was Franklin's response to Ezra Stiles' letter. Here is my creed. I believe in one God, creator of the universe. You might can say divine providence. That he governs it by his providence. That he ought to be worshipped. That the most acceptable service we can render to him is doing good to his other creation, his children. I think the system of morals devised by Jesus and his religion as he left them to us, the best the world ever saw or is likely to see. But I apprehend it has received various corrupting changes. And I have with, the most, with most of the present dissenters in England I doubt as to his divinity. It's tragic, isn't it? Even though I think he had a sister that was, had been born again. Here's where some of this falls. We hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men are created equal. All men are created equal. And see, even though Jefferson was a slave owner, he had... He had a sense that this was not right. And England did away with slavery without a civil war. We could have, but we didn't. The sovereignty of God, the divine providence of God, and like I said, I prefer the sovereignty of God, is that God's plan will ultimately win. His plan ultimately won beyond the Civil War. And we need to be careful on embracing the term divine providence as this one website. You know, I was listening to 88.9, and um, I wished I could listen to preaching without critiquing preaching. But I critique myself all the time. And this guy was just really... I was enjoying it until he said something really stupid. And he was preaching a great message. And then he said, Isaiah, by his stripes were healed, says, that has nothing to do with your biological health. It only has to do with your spiritual health. Because God's plan for you is that you get sick and die. Now, would you vote for that being a stupid statement? And I, I jotted down the ministry. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send a communication that if that's God's plan for you to get sick and die, then stop going to doctors. Just go ahead and get it over with. But I'm thinking, Matthew, somebody didn't give Matthew that memo. Because we talked about Jesus healing all kinds of sicknesses and delivering people from demons. He said, and as it was said in Isaiah, that he carried our sicknesses and our diseases with him. That's Isaiah. So Matthew is giving us a commentary on Isaiah and this guy's well off somewhere. Sometimes people get so absorbed 
and that all things work together for good and that God is, that, that sickness and death is part of God's plan. It's going to happen. But there's no one, no one that can tell me that Kevin Heitch should have been killed the day he died. And that's one of the things I struggled with after his death. He should have went on to Bible college. He should, you know, I hear what people say, but there's things that happen there that God was not controlling. Man was controlling. And we have got to be careful how we embrace that idea. I believe in the sovereignty of God. Now let me take you to all of Psalm 20. Because this is a great chapter that you can, whatever you're facing in life, you know, he says late in the chapter, some trust in chariots, some trust in horses. In other words, external things, that's, they have control of that apparatus, chariots and horses. So we trust in the Lord our God. Listen to how that whole psalm reads. May the Lord answer you when you are in distress. Now, for the Lord to answer you, what is going on? You're calling. Okay, the sovereignty of God works conjunction with us. He said, ask, knock, seek. But without the asking, knocking, and seeking, is the other part going to happen? And listen, this is a great psalm about the participation of God in our lives. Some people think God ought to control their lives when they don't like what's going on. And they wonder why God does it, you know, like, why did you let me do that? (laughs) Because if you want to try something stupid, he'll let you try it. If you want to make a dumb decision, he'll let you make the dumb decision. And I wish I had a better vocabulary to help you, but I just, it just is a way I can express it. Verse 2, may he send you help from the sanctuary and grant you support from Zion. May he remember all your, your sacrifices, your participation in worship, and accept your burnt offerings, what you're bringing to him. May he give you the desire of your heart, the desire of your heart. Maybe he's authoring it by his presence in your life, but it's the desire of your heart. May he give you that and make all your plans succeed. Your plans. Your plans. Probably a lot of times people just ask, well, what's your plan? I'm working on that. He's not saying plans that you haven't worked on. He says plans that you have got in front of you, that you want to see God do something. This is what he's referring to. It's the participation that we have with the sovereign God. May we shout for joy over your victory and lift up our banners in the name of our God. May the Lord grant all your requests. Again, this is the petitions that's coming from us to God. Now this I know. The Lord gives victory to his anointed. He answers him from his heavenly sanctuary with the victorious power of his right hand. And here it is. It fits right in, doesn't it? Some trust in chariots and some in horses, 
but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They are brought to their knees and fall. Those who are trusting in chariots and horses are brought to their knees and fall. But we rise. Those who trust in the Lord will rise up and stand firm. Lord, give victory to the king. Answer us when we call. That's the sovereign God working in the midst of people who are participating in his purpose and are actively engaged in communicating with him and expressing. It's sometimes Jesus, you know, I think is a leper. He's like, well, what do you want me to do? It's like, you don't get it? Or a blind guy, what do you want me to do? You know, he wanted them to tell him. He could see what they needed. But he says, is this what you want? I remember praying for a guy who was disabled. was going to pray for him. This was in McClinney, Florida. I don't know if any of you know where McClinney, Florida is. But I was pastoring a little bitty church. And uh, one of my pastor friends was pastoring a little bitty church. And people who pastor little bitty churches stay together. <laughs> we, we are in community. And he said, I got this guy, he's disabled, we need to pray, he's, he's battling addictions and all this. And, and uh, we told him, we, we came in, we was going to pray for him, and, and uh, we took the substance that he was using and says, it's time to get rid of this, for lack of a better social worker etiquette. He said, whoa, wait, 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 I paid money for that. He says, we're going to pray for God to completely deliver you and heal you from your disability. He says, well, I would lose my disability check. And I'm, I'm kidding you not. He didn't want us praying for him. So you think, why would Jesus ask people that, that's blind? You know, they may have taken in a pretty good income with alms. And I hear people that's got the sign next to the exit, we'll work for food. Some of them make a pretty good living. And Jesus has it. And there's just some people, I'm not sure if they want God to fix their lives. I walked out of there like, Ian, I looked at you and said, can you believe that? And we just shook our heads like, well, Okay. The sovereignty of God works in conjunction with faith. And even, I'm not a Calvinist. There's part of Calvinism that I I believe is right on. You know, how about a strange bird for that? But George Whitfield was a Calvinist to the core. But here's what George Whitfield felt so desperately in his heart. That God indeed had ordained people to get saved, but they had to hear the gospel in order for that to happen. And that man would boom his voices before even daylight arrived outside of coal mines. And coal miners out there in the dark was getting saved. And he knew and he felt in his heart that the purpose of God was to save some of those people and they had to hear a clear word from the Lord. I believe that. However you want to determine God does it, people have to respond to God with trust. And the key word 
in Psalm 27 is the word trust. What are you trusting? What are you trusting? The apparatus that we have some control over or beyond that we trust that God's going to get us through it. God is going to be our help. Can't fix this, Lord. Can't make this work. Help me. Help me. You've got, you're the only one that can help me. And I guarantee you, he will hear that prayer. He will hear the sincere prayer of a desperate person who can't see any way out. And chariots and horses and stuff cannot get them out of where they're at. It comes down to the point, are you going to trust God? And to me, here's what, there's two things there in, in these last references. I didn't mention the, the one right before, divine providence. One before that, just a few sentences, was appealing to the judge of the world. We're appealing to the judge of the world. There's a reference to God as the righteous judge. And there's two things Thomas Jefferson realized, and I don't even think the man was, was born again, but there's two things he thought we needed to launch this incredible, crazy idea of taking on England, and that is we have to appeal to God and we have to rely on him. And appealing means prayer. Appealing is crying out to him. And that's, that's in the Declaration of Independence. And that last point, and a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, he was saying, we believe that what we're about to do is in keeping with God's character and his righteousness. And we believe this will work because of that. And I guarantee you, the rest of the world looked at those 56 men and said, y'all are crazy to take on England. You're a bunch of farmers. That's a standing army. That's the greatest army in the world. But it's that last point, even Jefferson, that last point, we got to have a firm reliance on the divine providence of God, meaning God is sovereign and we believe what, what's in keeping with his character, he will bless I wished I knew history a lot more than what I do. Because people's story is sacred to me. Brenda's family, I've researched them. So far, I haven't found a horse thief among them. So, they, you know, they might have been a horse thief in my family. <laughs> they just didn't want to include them in the history. But all those people, those names what they went through is sacred to me because it made the family what it was coming down to who she was. Her mom and dad was formed by the experiences of their family. And I look at Brenda's, the, the wonderful qualities in her. Yes, the Lord had a part, but it was her family giving her a lot when it came to character and integrity and righteousness that made her the high-quality character that she is. And that's what history means to me. I, I hope Benjamin Franklin... It, it would be an utter shame if Benjamin Franklin died without knowing Jesus. Because he heard George Whitfield preach. 
or that Thomas Jefferson died without knowing Jesus. After all the things he witnessed, you know, God was still working in those guys. Even if they weren't Christian, he was still working. Would you stand with me? I just want us... I, I love this country. July the 4th, let me just encourage you. Pull up. It's not a long document. But pull up the Declaration of Independence. And pull up the original text because it's a lot longer. Just an utter shame. You see, what I see is we had two moments in America's history to avoid the Civil War. One was when we were separating from England. The author of the Declaration of Independence wanted us to separate from the practice of slavery. And he was calling King George on that term. The second was the Dred Scott decision. A few years, 1857, I believe it was. I've read most of that decision by Robert, Roger Taney. It makes me sick on my stomach when I read what that man wrote. And it's the same seven to two decision that was Roe v. Wade, which to me, those are the two greatest displays of injustice ever perpetrated on people. It took individuals and classified them as non-persons. One in the womb and one because of the shade of their skin. And those, the, the Dred Scott decision and that, it breaks my heart when I think of what happened in the Civil War. We should have avoided that. And I am not a Confederate flag waver because it's a tragedy. We shouldn't celebrate tragedies. 